I want to introduce our preacher uh, this morning. Uh, her name is Kate Boyd. She's a member of this church, and uh, Kate is cool enough to have an About the Author page on Amazon, which is, I mean, I think that's pretty much making it as a, as a person today. Uh, here's Kate. In addition to being my friend, here's what Amazon says about her. Kate Boyd is an author, a Bible teacher, and a host of the Happy and Holy podcast. She helps believers who find themselves in the messy middle between loving the church and leaving it to more confidently walk the lines between doubt and certainty and faith and action with love and grace for all. She's traveled the world to interview and tell the stories of believers on mission, and inspired by those encounters, she creates spaces to facilitate wholehearted discipleship in the church at home. And she is studying, I believe finishing up, studying theology with an emphasis in biblical studies at Perkins School of Theology. Like I said, in addition to all of that, which is really cool that that lives on the internet, by the way, um, Kate is a friend of AUMC. She's a member here along with her husband, Daniel. She helps to lead the Renew Sunday School class uh, alongside some other leaders here um, and is just an invaluable member of this church family. Uh, and it's my joy and honor to welcome her to the stage uh, this Sunday to bring today's sermon. Um, she's about to release, uh, uh, releasing, in the process of releasing a book called An Untidy Faith. Um, and uh, it's a story that I know a lot of us that are part of this community um, can relate to, a story that is shared, not one-to-one, -one, but uh, there are so many similarities as to how life uh, can feel and faith can feel messy and tangly, and um, Kate does a wonderful job, sort of equal parts memoir and theology book and vision for the future, um, so I would commend it to you. Uh, our scripture today, and then I'm going to get out of the way, uh, comes to us from uh, ch John chapter 21, beginning in verse 9. It says this, When they had landed, they saw a fire there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Simon Peter got up and pulled the net to shore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. Yet the net hadn't torn, even with so many fish. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples could bring themselves to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. He asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was sad that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He replied, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us, let us say, thanks be to God. Thank you, Scott, and for all of you guys for having me. I'm excited to share some of my story with you today. And it starts about 10 years ago when I had the first of many experiences that would actually sort of change the trajectory of my faith forever. I happened to be working at a missions agency here in the Dallas area, and part of my job was marketing. And so I actually got to go to the places where we worked overseas 
and document what was happening. So my job was to meet people, to sit across from them and hear their stories, and to have a look and witness what God was doing in their lives, but also in the regions in which they lived. And my first trip was to Latin America, and it was in a country where you couldn't build new church buildings, you couldn't talk about Jesus in public, um, and you couldn't worship outside of church buildings. So there was sort of some limitations. Um, and the day before I flew back to Texas, I sat across from a woman who I'll call Benita in, a, in this country, and I was listening to her story, and she was telling me all about how um, she worshipped with people in her home, and how just the week before, she worked for a government official, and she had told him about Jesus, and even though her neighbors actually yell at her and even spit at her as she walks down the street because she has shifted away from their definition of, you know, what faith or culture looks like, um, that she still made space to care for them and to take care of them and to go to the hospital and visit them if they were sick. And, like, I was, this is not something I'm used to experiencing. I mean, the worst that happens to me, I feel like, is social discomfort if something gets out of whack. But for Benita, there were really, like, economic consequences or even, you know, prison on the line for some of the things that she was doing. And so I just like looked at her surprised and said, why risk it? Why do any of this? And she looked at me like with the heart of a grandmother, I feel like, who's just like, oh, honey, you know, she has that feeling. We've all gotten that from our grandmas. Um, and she had, her eyes were full of kindness and sincerity and that little bit of surprise. And she said, well, it's what Jesus told us to do. And it's funny, because it's simple. It's not even an unordinary thing to hear. I grew up in the era of WWJD bracelets, okay? I had it everywhere. That was like the thing to do when I was in like junior high and high school. Um, but what was different about it to me when I heard it from Benita was the context of her life was so different than mine. And the context of her spiritual formation was so different than mine. And I realized after this phrase rolled around in my head for weeks and weeks that the discipleship I grew up with in the church didn't actually shape me to ask that question about what faith looked like. Instead, I was shaped by questions like, what do you believe? And is that the right thing to believe? And are you sure you believe this actual right thing? The people who were heroes in my faith tradition, my faith upbringing, were the ones who never changed their minds. They were steadfast, and they were sure, and they always came to church all together. Um, and I realized after witnessing Benita and then a bunch of other people over the years that this had actually made my faith really small, and my world small, too. Um, everything fit in these really tiny boxes of belief. But after these experiences, I realized that I had to start asking different questions, and I had to start making space for different people and perspectives and practices that maybe I wouldn't have done before. So I had to ask myself, what if faith doesn't actually fit in these neat little tidy boxes that we have? And so this is where things get messy, right? When you're raised to believe that certainty is, is the whole point, you start to wonder who you can even talk to about your questions and you don't even know where to look because nobody's ever talked about this with you before and then you start to wonder if it's even okay to have questions to begin with 
And I wondered, really deep inside, was I being a bad disciple because everything was kind of messy and uncertain and unstable right now? So in this season, I figured, hey, if I'm supposed to do what Jesus told me to do or what Jesus did, then maybe I need to go back to the Gospels and take a look at Jesus's life. Because that seemed like the best place to start. And that's where I found comfort in the story about Peter that Scott just read. Because for a guy that we sort of now talk about as like the ultimate disciple, right? Like whole faith traditions are built on Peter. Um, Peter was actually a whole mess, <laughs> right? Maybe a mess and a half. Um, and if we look at his relationship with Jesus, we will actually see that Jesus was his whole life, his whole time with the disciples in the business of reshaping what faith and life with God looks like, breaking it out of those really, really neat boxes that we really like to have, because honestly, they feel really good. And so here's where we'll pick up in the story, and I want to give you a little context for what happens before this, um, because you get to see Peter again in all his glory. Um, the story Scott read for us is from John 21, and this takes place post-resurrection. So here we are at a time when the disciples are trying to figure out what life looks like right now, because the Messiah they expected was supposed to be a conquering war hero king, right? Who was going to come back and take back Israel from the Roman Empire, and it was going to be not oppressed anymore. But then their king died. But then he came back to life, and they're like, but he's not an actual king. So what does life look like now? And so they did what they knew to do. A handful of them went on with part of their life and they went fishing. And they're having a rough go at it. And a man calls to them from the shore, tells them try something else. So they do. And a huge number of fish, 153, which we heard, was pulled up. And this is where Peter and another disciple realize that it's Jesus. So Peter even without his outer garment on, jumps out of the boat, right, and starts swimming and running to shore. And I'm just imagining what the other disciples are thinking because they're just like rowing in the boat. Surely that's faster than Peter swimming, but I don't know, to each his own. <laughs> so Peter arrives here on the boat, I mean on the shore, and everyone else follows him up in the, in the boat. And there on the shore, Jesus is waiting with breakfast and to have a conversation with Peter. And there were three things in this story that I want us to notice because they were both surprising and comforting to me in this season. The first is that Peter meets, or sorry, Jesus meets Peter at the messiest time of his life with generosity and grace. Now, Peter may have left his friends and his fish and even his outer garment in that boat, but he comes up on shore and he is carrying like 10 suitcases of baggage, right? Because we have seen the ways in which Peter has maybe not lived up to what we think a disciple should be. There's the time that he decided to walk on water and then almost drowned in his doubt. There's the time that he denied being associated with Jesus, not just once. He doubles and triples down on that. Or perhaps you remember him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he falls asleep and then he wakes up in the commotion and gets so distressed in everything that he cuts a man's ear off. Or maybe there's the Peter who, after the crucifixion, is waiting in a room with all of the other disciples because right now it feels like their hope of the Messiah is dashed. Doubt and denial, distress and despair, 
all of this, standing in front of Peter, standing in front of Jesus, Peter knows that Jesus knows that this is his journey, that it hasn't been a nice one. It didn't go from point A to point B in a nice straight line like we always imagine it. And with all of this in the background, hanging in the air, Jesus makes the first move towards Peter and towards the other disciples. On the shore, over a little fire, Jesus has made a breakfast of loaves and fishes, which feels a lot like the wilderness where he fed 5,000 back in John 6. And he looks at his audience of a few and he knows what they need. They need food, they need friendship, and they just need to be present with the Lord. And even though they don't have it all together yet, Jesus extends generosity and grace without exception, without agenda, and without prerequisite. The second thing that I notice in this story is what Jesus focuses on. It's not on Peter's past. It's not on Peter being perfect. It's on his present love. Now, this is one of the ways that I know that I'm not like Jesus yet, because um, Jesus didn't scold anybody. He didn't reprimand. He didn't get passive or aggressive or petty. Not that that sounds like anybody I know. Um, he doesn't bring up any of Peter's wobbles or waverings. It doesn't enter into the conversation. To the Peter who has doubted and denied, who hasn't been certain or stable, Jesus has just one question. Do you love me? He doesn't ask, aren't you sure about X? Or don't you think you could have done this thing better? It's not what he is concerned with. All he asks is, do you love me? And right here, without demand for perfection or uniformity, Peter's love is enough for Jesus. In fact, it leads into the third thing, and that Peter's love for Jesus is enough for Jesus to give him a sacred duty to shepherd. Most times when I hear this passage preached in my past, it was to notice the beautiful redemption arc, and I think that's wonderful. There are some great, like, beautiful symmetry, right, between the denial and the three times at the fire. Um, or it's to, like, really remind us. It's sort of a great commission-oriented version, reminding us that we, you know, have a job to do to make disciples. And that definitely factors in here. But the thing that I noticed over my years of like in this hard season is that there's sort of an emotional component here too, right? From Peter's point of view and from Jesus's point of view, Jesus isn't just responding to Peter's love by giving him another to-do item. He's actually entrusting Peter with the work that he did himself throughout his life and ministry. And that's the thing I really want everyone to hear, that Jesus trusted Peter, imperfect, unstable, downtrodden Peter, right here with the task of being a shepherd. And we see what Jesus means by shepherd back in John 10, because he talks about himself being the good shepherd. And when you listen to this list that I'm about to read, I think what you'll notice is that it's less of a to-do list or even less of a to-believe list. It's actually a who-to-be list. Being a good shepherd in the tradition of Jesus means that the sheep know his voice and follow him, so there's a familiarity. He knows the sheep, and they know him, so there's an intimacy of relationship. 
he's willing to lay down his life for his sheep, there's like a depth of care and compassion. And he will bring along other sheep from different folds because they will hear his voice and follow him. And they will come along because, like he said before, they will know his voice and he will know who they are. And this builds on a major theme in John around love. The work of a shepherd fits into this um, in a unique way because unlike other gospel writers, when they talk about love, they're usually using it in a self-denial or an emptying capacity. But in John, the language is actually of fullness and of friendship. So here we see that love is actually care and respect and attention and relationship. Love working through Peter as a shepherd is how others can discern the voice of God and the work of God, and even how Peter can discern the voice of God and the work of God, even when it shows up in unexpected places and unexpected ways. And this is the task that Jesus entrusts to Peter. And in this moment, Jesus is also conveying his trust in belief that Peter can do this. And Peter actually does it throughout his life. We can see some examples in the book of Acts. In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost, Peter is the one that goes out into the square and preaches. And the Holy Spirit translates it to everybody there. And this is where the good news expands out of Israel and to the rest of the world. In Acts 10, Peter has a vision. And it's a vision that there are no more labels, clean and unclean, on the foods um, that you would have found in the Jewish religion. Not for people who are of Christ, not for Gentiles. And this makes following Jesus less stringent than it was before. And Peter, in Acts 15, was also part of the group who met because they were really trying to figure out where all these Gentile believers fit in this whole thing. And after hearing the reports and the arguments from Paul and the other believers who showed up to make their case, Peter is among those who stands up and says, you know what, I think you're right. We don't actually need circumcision anymore. Not for the Gentiles. And I believe that this conversation with Jesus on the beach is a turning point for Peter, where it all starts, where he starts to see that his hard times of his faith are actually a really big advantage for leading a growing and evolving movement of faith that makes Christ more accessible to people in different cultures and places. I recently heard Cornell West, who is a theologian and professor and philosopher, speak. And he said that to be able to connect with and care for people takes empathy and imagination. Now, we develop empathy through suffering, through our hard times, through all those very human, very challenging experiences that we have. And imagination is a tool that we can use to get creative and to see a way forward when the old stuff isn't working anymore or isn't working for everyone. And so we've seen Peter engage this, right? We've seen Peter's really hard, challenging journey. We've recounted some of it earlier today. He lived that very human life alongside Jesus. And what we learn now is that his doubt and his denial weren't obstacles to his discipleship. They were part of his discipleship because that is what makes him ready. That is what gives him empathy to be a shepherd like Jesus was a shepherd to help people figure out what it looks like 
to follow Jesus in this time and place. That love of Jesus is what gave him that holy imagination to expand that for more people. And this is even when it means breaking the mold of what it looked like to follow God and love God before. And this work of engaging empathy and imagination is our work too, today, as God's people. In fact, in his first letter in the Bible, in 1 Peter, Peter writes to a community experiencing hostility and extraordinary difficulties because their love and determination to live and love like Jesus is at odds with a lot of the other structures in their society. And it's here that Peter actually passes on the duty to shepherd to the leaders of the church there so that the leaders can pass it on to the people there. And it's not for stability. It's not for status. Um, it is not for selfish gain, but it is in humility and love that they are to do this. And I think Peter knew that the journey to happiness and holiness and wholeness is not a straight line because he experienced it. In fact, maturity requires growth and change and discomfort. And so over the years, as I unpacked my experiences with believers overseas, I realized that the work of our faith is to follow in the footsteps of Peter, which is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. It is the work of a dynamic expansion of our faith, not a static conformity. It gives us the opportunity to ask, what would Jesus look like if he was in their shoes? For me, the result of that question led to a new motto. If it's biblical, it must be global. And this was the lens through which I could engage my empathy and my imagination and make space for all of the stories that I witnessed around the world so that I could make space for the ways in which maybe I had tangled up how we um, open the doors for people to experience the love and grace of God fully. And it also helped me to discern where and how God might be working and to accept the fact that maybe I don't know everything <laughs> and that people in different places have something to teach me about what it means to follow God. It was born out of my own doubt and discouragement, my own wrestling with people and experiences that were so different than my own. And then in the same way, your doubts, your denial, your distress and despair are not a liability in God's economy. They're not what make you a bad disciple. They're actually what make you a great one because they give you the empathy and imagination to get messy, to make space for others, and to show love that people can recognize as the work of God. So all the parts of your journey, especially the hard, confusing, and uncertain ones, paired with the love of Jesus, create the opportunity for a fuller and freer faith for all of us. And that's the invitation that Jesus extends to you and to me. We just have to be brave enough, like Peter, to say yes to it.